Okay, well, good morning, everybody. Um, welcome to uh, Redemption Church this morning. Um, glad that you guys are here with us this morning. Over the past few months here at Redemption, we have been moving through uh, the book of Acts. The book of Acts takes place in church history um, right after uh, the, the victory of Jesus on the cross and through his uh, resurrection was made manifest to the world where Jesus won our victory over Satan, sin, and death, provided a way for us to be taken from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, right? And so the book of Acts is the story of the gospel going forth uh, after that happens. The beginning of Acts, there's this verse, Acts 1-8, that talks about the gospel going forth into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we're in the part of Acts this morning, Acts 26, uh, where the gospel um, has proceeded to go to the ends of earth, to the ends of the earth. And uh, specifically this morning, we find Paul, where we found him the past few weeks, still in prison uh, before some Roman authorities and some, um, and some other authorities as well. And so in just a minute, we'll pick up and we'll read through Acts 26 and, and uh, talk about what God has for us there. Uh, but as we get started this morning, um, would you pray with me? Holy Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to be together this morning to celebrate what you've done for us, to celebrate your victory through the resurrection and, and the gospel going forth to the ends of the earth as you've promised like we see in the book of Acts. And God, this morning as I stand on this stage and talk through your word and read your word, I pray that Jesus would be lifted high in all of that, that Jesus would be glorified and that we would draw, be drawn to you because of Christ. Holy Father, I recognize that my words are of little importance, but your words are of utmost importance, are of utmost importance. So God, I pray that in our minds and in our hearts, we would hear your words, that you would use me simply as an instrument of your grace and mercy, of the gospel, of your love, that we would see Jesus and Jesus alone. And Holy Father, I ask all this in the name of your Son, our precious Savior. Amen. Acts 26, if you want to turn there, I'm going to go ahead and read through it. Um, there are a lot of verses, so just, uh, just stay with me. Um, but let's just go. Acts 26, verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. Especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you, listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time. They are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. For this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. 
In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. When we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me." Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. And to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer, that by, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. He was saying these things in his defense. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind, and your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Have you ever seen a movie or read a book where there are multiple storylines and multiple narratives and multiple perspectives that all come together in one place, right? As I think back to older movies, I think back to like Pulp Fiction or Love Actually, if you guys know those movies, different stories coming together in one place. There was a more recent movie, uh, The Girl on the Train, it was a book as well, where all these stories are intermingled, but they eventually come together in the same place. Different narratives, different perspectives, different worldviews all clashing together. And that's what happens in Acts 26. We have these three main characters. Well, Jesus is obviously the, the main character, but we have these three main characters in the text. There's Festus. He's the governor of Judea, a Roman appointee that has replaced Felix, um, who wields all the power of the state. He's all in with Rome, completely Roman. There's Agrippa. He is a Jewish client king, uh, ruler over several cities and areas. 
in the northern part of Israel, but he also was ruler over Jerusalem and the temple, um, which is sort of separate from the other places where he's Uh, in charge of. He's somewhat passionate about Judaism. He's known to stick up for Jewish people when he's in the court of the emperor, but he's influenced by Roman power, and he's somewhere in the middle here, right? Not fully Roman, um, not fully Jewish. And then there's Paul, 100% committed to the resurrection, 100% committed to Israel's God. And Paul states in the text here exactly what he's about, that he's just doing his best to tell the world what Moses and the prophets had been saying all along, that the Messiah would suffer, that the Messiah would be the first to rise from the dead, and that because the Messiah rises from the dead, it's proof that God's word and that the message of the gospel should be proclaimed to the Gentiles and to all the nations. It's what Paul has been going back to all along. The resurrection means that Jesus is God. The resurrection means that everything the prophets and Moses promised has come true. The resurrection means that the gospel is to go forth and everybody's to hear it. And God is going to create a new group of people to be his. And so all these opposing worldviews are colliding in this one narrative. They all come together in the same place, right? And let's remember how we got to Acts chapter 26. And Acts 9.15, that's sort of where we see um, Paul on the road to Damascus and he's blinded. Paul talks about that in this passage. He's on the road to Damascus uh, to persecute people who are followers of Jesus. And Jesus meets him on the road and meets his group on the road. Um, And because of that encounter, because of the glory of Christ or, or whatever happens, Paul is blinded. So God sends this guy named Ananias to go to Paul to help him receive his sight and to give him what is to be his mission and his commissioning. And and God says to Ananias before Ananias goes to Paul that Paul is a chosen instrument to carry God's name to the Gentiles and to kings and to his fellow children of Israel. Right? That's, that's That's what God says to Ananias Paul is going to do. So Ananias takes that message to Paul. He goes and Paul gets out on the road. And a lot happens between Acts chapter 9 and now. But because Paul has been um, carrying the name of God, the fame of God to Gentiles, to Jews, to kings, to everybody, specifically to Gentiles though, um, Paul comes back to Jerusalem just a few chapters before Acts 26 and he's put in prison. He's been arrested on false charges in Jerusalem, and he's taken before the Sanhedrin. And there's a plot on his life, so the Roman authorities move him to Caesarea on the coast. And there he gives his testimony to Felix, the Roman governor. And then he sits in prison for two years, going back and forth with Felix. And then this new Roman governor comes on the scene, Festus. And Festus has to send Paul to Caesar, because Paul appealed to Caesar... And uh, Festus doesn't know what to charge him with. So he invites King Agrippa, who is, like I said, a Jewish, uh, a Roman client king over parts of Israel. And um, Festus invites Agrippa to come and hear what Paul has to say so that maybe he can come up with some charges to send to Rome with Paul. And through all of this, we've got to take a step back and remember that the whole Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, and three of the highest political officials in Palestine, right, Felix and Festus and Agrippa, 
all hear the truth of the resurrection, just like God said to Ananias they would through Paul. Paul was arrested. He's in prison on false charges. But despite being in prison, God is still using Paul to do the very thing that God said Paul would do, to proclaim his name to kings and Gentiles and the children of Israel. It's probably not how Paul thought it was going to happen, but God is doing what he said he would do through Paul. And I love how verse 1 begins, Agrippa gives Paul permission to speak, and Ben and I were joking about this a second ago, but Paul motions with his hand that he's going to speak, and I, I wonder what he did. Did he go like this? Did he go like, hey, you guys. I don't know what he did, but he motions with his hand, and he begins to conduct this final masterpiece of Paul that we see in the book of Acts. He recounts how he grew up thoroughly Jewish, how he became a Pharisee, that he was a strict observer of the law. And he establishes this common ground with Agrippa, saying that Agrippa knows the Jewish religion and and all these other things. And then, right away in verse 6, Paul goes back to where he always goes. It's over and over and over in the book of Acts. He goes back to the resurrection. In verse 6 through 8, it says this, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Right, he goes right back to the resurrection. And then he moves back to his past and he starts talking about the ways that he persecuted earlier followers of Jesus, including being involved in their deaths and going to uh, foreign cities to, to persecute them um, with the permission of the chief priests. And he talks about his fury and the rage against Jesus and Jesus' followers. Right? And then for the third time in Acts, he begins to recount his conversion story. It's the third time we've seen it. But he adds something new in verse 14 that we haven't really seen before. He says this, that that God said to him on the road, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Right? And that's that's an allusion to a well-known Greek proverb about humans trying to resist the divine will. But what's interesting is that it's a Greek proverb. And Paul would have realized the profound irony of God using a Greek saying to get his attention rather than something from the Old Testament. Jesus is commissioning him to go and tell the polytheistic nations about the one God. And he's warning him against his present zeal against Jesus by using a very pagan saying from a very pagan tradition. It's not something from the Old Testament. I think it would have gotten Paul's attention pretty quickly. And then in verses 16 through 18, we have this commissioning given to Paul that we haven't really seen to this full extent before either. And and this is the commissioning. It says, For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. And we know that Jesus appeared to Paul, even in prison just a few chapters earlier, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, To whom I am sending you. And then we get to this. To open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light. And from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins. And a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
And then Paul goes on in this passage and he begins to talk about how he's been faithful to that call and how that call got him in trouble and got him arrested. And then in in verses 22 and 23, Paul directly references Isaiah 49 to say what he's been saying all along, that Jesus is the fulfillment of what Moses and the prophets have promised. And Agrippa would have known this passage. He would have absolutely known this passage. And Paul references it. And he says, And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. It's a direct reference to Isaiah 49. And right on cue... Right on cue, Festus, the Gentile in the room, Festus reacts according to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23. Paul says there that the gospel is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And Festus reacts and says, Paul, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. You don't know what you're talking about. And Paul uses that opportunity, uses that, and puts the spotlight directly on Agrippa. I think it's a pretty masterful moment for Paul. We see this over and over with Paul. Um, He knows exactly what's going on. And he puts the spotlight right on Festus. And he says, for the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Right? He, he puts his finger right on, right on Festus's chest and says, I, I know you believe what I'm talking about. And Agrippa says to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus? Right? It's so bold. Paul throws down the gauntlet here. Paul knows Agrippa can't say that he doesn't believe. But Paul also knows that if Agrippa says that he does believe, then maybe he has to acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ and that what Paul is talking about, the resurrection, is true. And all of this time that Paul has been in prison and all of this craziness that's going on has been pointless. He knows that Paul would have proven his innocence and his alignment with the tradition of Israel's God more perfectly than anybody else present in the room. And so Agrippa recognizes that conundrum and instead of answering, he simply steps away and, 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 and tries to move the conversation in another direction, right? And, and what Paul has done here is beautiful. It's a masterpiece. It's, a, it's incredible. All these converging worldviews are present, and Paul simply keeps going back to Jesus, going back to the resurrection, back to the scriptures from the Old Testament, back to what's gotten him in trouble all along, back to his commissioning. To open the eyes of the blind. Back to his commissioning to speak the fame of God's name to Gentiles and to kings and to his fellow children of Israel. Right? That that the eyes of the blind would be opened. That they would be taken from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And that's where I want to spend just a few more minutes here. We see this chapter end by Um, Agrippa and by Festus saying there's nothing to charge him with. If he simply would not have appealed to Caesar, he could have been set free. But this commissioning that we see in verses 17 and 18 
where God says something specific to Paul or where Paul recounts what God said to him is incredibly important and incredibly powerful. And I think um, it's the crux of this chapter. And, and it says this at the very end of verse 17, to whom I am sending you, and then verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And there's simply three things I want to point out in the time that we have left. God gave Paul a specific purpose with a specific message, right? To open the eyes of the blind. The second thing is this, that same message changes everything for you and for me. And the third thing I want to point out is that same message can change everything for someone else through you and through me, right? Number one, God gave Paul a specific purpose with a specific message to open the eyes of the blind. Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night and been able to navigate around your room simply because your eyes are accustomed to the darkness? Do you know what I'm talking about? When you cut out the lights in your room at night, it's completely dark. But when you wake up, you can kind of see and navigate around. You can get to the bathroom, you can get to the door to leave, whatever it might be. And I think that's a normal thing. I can wake up in the darkness and see the things in my room or, or do whatever I need to do without cutting on any lights. Now, I may be loud and clumsy and trip over things, but I can at least see a little bit to get around, right? And it's amazing that when we awake in the darkness, we're accustomed to the darkness. But the minute you leave your room and you walk into the bathroom or, or you go to some other part of your house and you cut on the lights... You're no longer accustomed to the darkness. If you cut the lights right back off, you can't see in the darkness any longer. The darkness no longer makes sense. When the lights are on, the darkness doesn't make sense because everything is clearer and more defined and more definite. And, right, and the spiritual reality of our whole world is that the world is blind in spiritual darkness, but they don't even realize that I'm able to see the truth or the brightness, or the beauty, or the glory of Christ. And the whole world is under the authority of Satan, who exploits our sinfulness to continually deceive us, to make us see, make us think that what we're seeing is all there is, that what we're seeing is truly beautiful and valuable and satisfying, right? And the whole world is under condemnations for its sin. But Paul says that he was sent by God to change that. To open the eyes of people. To bring Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel into light. To point the way to Jesus. And, and to Festus, to whom this message of a risen Savior made no sense, it was folly. And to Agrippa, who knew that God had promised a Messiah, but who had no intention of believing something so silly, it was a stumbling block. Do you remember Agrippa's reaction when he said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? It all seems so silly to him that he could be persuaded. And the whole time, he's completely unaware that turning the lights on will bring everything into a much clearer focus, that everything will become more real and more defined if he just cuts the lights on. It's impossible for a human to open the eyes of the blind, to deliver somebody from satanic, satanic bondage 
to, to deliver somebody from sin, to grant forgiveness of sins, to awaken a person to saving faith. But Jesus says to Paul, I am sending you to open the eyes of the blind because God has always chosen to use human instruments to accomplish his supernatural work. And so God says, Paul, I'm sending you to open the blind, eyes of the blind. And we know that's what the message of Jesus Right? And, and that's the next thing we need to see here, what this supernatural work that God sends Paul and sends us to do, how it changes everything for you and me. And, and it's simply, the verse simply here lays it out. Verse 18 lays it out. God turns us from darkness to light. Rather than being blinded by this world, thinking that we can see everything clearly, we learn to love the light of God. We, we, we learn to love the light that God has provided us. Right? You can, I saw this yesterday. You can go on YouTube and see all kinds of videos of people seeing for the first time in years because of some sort of corrective surgery or putting on glasses that help them see color for the first time. Somebody that I follow on social media posted a video of that yesterday, right? And when those things happen, their reactions are so pure and so amazing. Um, it's so joyful to see those Things And this is a little different analogy in that it changes from seeing to hearing, but the concept is the same. I remember seeing this video several years ago, and I had to go and look it up yesterday. Um, but I remember seeing this video several years ago where there's, where there's this lady that hears for the first time. And all I could remember about the video is that she's sitting in a chair in a doctor's office, and her right arm is all tatted up. And I don't remember the exact circumstances, but I remember somebody cuts on her cochlear implant and she begins to hear beeping and she begins to hear voices for the first time. And I think we have the video queued up. There you go. It's beeping. So now technically your device is on. <laughs> Can you tell? Oh, that's exciting. Here, you can put it down for a second. I remembered that video yesterday when I was thinking about this passage simply because of the joy and the overwhelming nature of not being able to hear and then being able to hear. Right? That's what Christ does for us. It's a perfect picture of what Jesus does for us. He awakens us to something joyful that we never even knew we could have from darkness to light. God turns us from Satan to himself. This idea that God turns us from the power of Satan to himself implies that the only power that Satan has over us is through deception, through blinding us, through making us think that what we're seeing is all there is, through making things look like something they're not. So when our eyes are open to see Christ the way he really is and to see God and the whole world and sin and righteousness and heaven and hell the way they really are, then the power of Satan is broken through Jesus. And our old master who's painted himself with deceitful colors is now clearly seen as a monster. And Jesus is seen as the rescuer and the hero that he truly is. Right, and this verse 18 says that we receive the forgiveness of sins so that in Christ's death, all of our sins have a remedy and all of our failings are laid on Christ and no longer counted against us. 
And then verse 18 says that we find our place, our lot, our identity in those who are set apart by Christ, by faith in Christ. And N.T. Wright puts it this way, the one God has unveiled his ultimate covenant purpose in this Messiah, this unexpected, unwanted, and scandalous crucified Jesus, that the nations are to be summoned into a new kind of community. His death has defeated the dark powers that kept the nations captive. So that the stigma of idolatry and uncleanness and immorality which formed the wall between God's people and the Gentiles can be done away. And we can now have forgiveness of sins. And with that forgiveness of sins comes a new identity and a new place being part, being counted as part of God's people. Right? Verse 18 lays it out for us. What does Jesus do for us? He takes us from darkness to light. He takes us from the power of darkness, from the power of Satan To himself. He grants us forgiveness of sins. He gives us a place with his people. We are set apart by the work of Christ as we put our faith in Christ. And that changes everything. And so God gave Paul the commission to go and to proclaim that truth. That God has provided a way for us to be right. That God has provided a way for us to be set free. That God has provided a way for us to be counted as part of his people. That's the commission that was given to Paul in as much as God did those very things to Paul. And just as God brought Paul from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, just as God brought us who, who, are, who are followers of Jesus from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, We've got to remember that this truth about what Paul was sent to do, this truth that God turns us from darkness to light, from Satan to himself, that God forgives our sins and counts us as his own people, this truth just isn't for us. And we steward it poorly if we don't realize that God has set us apart for the same purposes that God set Paul apart. Right? I, I long to be the kind of person that God uses to turn people from darkness to light. I long for this church to be a church that God uses to set people free. And I think that I have good warrant and good reason for believing that you and I can hear a personal and a corporate commission in the very same words that were given to Paul. Because in 1 Peter 2.9 Peter is describing every believer when he says this, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Paul is not the only one who is commissioned to proclaim the excellencies of the one who takes us from darkness to light. Everyone who has been given eyes to see God's glory, everyone who has been released from bondage to Satan, sin, and death by the victory of Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection, everyone who is bound to Christ is commissioned to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Right, and in just these couple of verses in the book of Acts, we see God commissioning Paul to proclaim this truth. We also see what God does for those when this truth is proclaimed and people respond in faith from darkness to light. 
forgiveness of sins being counted as part of God's people. And we see, I believe, that there's a corporate and a personal commissioning to proclaim the excellencies of the one who brought us out of darkness and into his light. And so there's some questions that as I draw to a close, we need to reflect on this morning. I believe these are pertinent questions for us. Number one, have you been brought out of darkness into light? Have you been released from the power of Satan and darkness? Do you have an identity and inheritance from Jesus by putting faith in Jesus? And if not, then the question for you this morning is, is now the time to respond? If you've not been set free, is today the time for you to respond? Is Jesus calling you to respond in faith, to put your faith, to put your belief in Christ? that he may bring you from darkness into light. And if that's something we need to deal with today, then let's deal with it. Let's grab some money and let's talk about it. But secondly, for those who have been set free, for those who would count ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ, let me ask you this question. What are you doing with the commissioning on your life to proclaim the excellencies of God to the world? Are you praying by name for individuals that their eyes would be opened that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. Are you praying that for people? Will you pray that for people? Are you, like Paul, using the opportunities that God gives you to persuade your kids, your family, to believe the truth of Jesus? Who else do you need to be speaking the truth of the gospel to, right? Are you praying for opportunities to speak God's truth to others? Are you praying for courage and boldness to seize those opportunities? Right? And and before you feel like what I'm asking you to do is impossible, right? I I became a believer um, in high school when I was a junior in high school, and, and since that time, I've heard that it's the responsibility of believers to proclaim the gospel of Jesus to others. And, and quite frankly, what does that mean? Does that mean we walk out the door and we just start preaching on the street corner? Does that mean we just go up to whoever and start sharing the gospel? What does it mean to proclaim the excellencies of Christ? And right, it can be a scary thing, and I get that. But maybe... Just maybe we make it a little more difficult than it needs to be. Maybe we just start by praying for people by name to be brought from darkness to light. Maybe that's where we start. Maybe we say, God, I know that this person needs to know you. I I know know that they need to be set free from Satan's sin and death. God, I'm going to pray for them that they would be brought from darkness to light. And And then... And then maybe we pray for God to give us opportunities to speak the truth to those people just by the influence and the relationship that we have with those people that we're praying for. And then maybe we pray for the courage to seize the opportunities that God grants us. And then when God gives us those opportunities, maybe like Paul, we depend on the Holy Spirit to move through us to say exactly what God would have us say. But maybe the place where we start is simply by praying that people would be freed from darkness to light. And then maybe we pray that God would use us. And then maybe we pray that God would give us courage 
And then in those moments, we seize those opportunities. I think maybe we make it more difficult than it needs to be. There's certainly a commission on our life to proclaim the excellencies of the one who set us free. But maybe, just maybe, that starts with prayer. We're going to move into a time of response. And um, the opportunity uh, is going to exist for us to continue to worship through singing. As the band comes back up here, the opportunity for us to continue to worship through giving exists as well. There's a giving basket in the back where you can put your tithes and offerings. You can also sit where you are and reflect and pray about the things that God has laid on our heart this morning. Whether that be that we need to come to know Christ for the first time. Whether that be that we need to begin to pray for those who, know, who we know that don't know Christ as their Lord and Savior, who haven't been released from darkness to light yet. Maybe it's that we pray that God begin to give us opportunities. Whatever it is that God is dealing with you this morning, I pray that, or I ask that you sit there and, and reflect on those things if that's where God would have you. But also we're going to take communion uh, on each side of the room over here. You can come up these aisles, tear off the bread, dip it in the wine or juice. Remember the body of Christ that was broken for us. Remember the blood of Christ that was shed for us, knowing that as we take communion, we're remembering what Christ has done and we're proclaiming to one another that we believe it. So if you're here and you can remember what Christ has done for you and you can proclaim that you believe it, then I encourage you to come and take communion. If those are not things you can remember, if those are not things that you can proclaim, I would encourage you to sit right where you are and hear what we're saying, that Jesus is good, that Jesus has something good for us, to take us from darkness to light. Will you pray with me? Holy Father, thank you for the opportunity we've had this morning just for a brief moment to look at your word and to, and to dive into just a couple of verses to talk about what it is that you do for us and the message that you've called us to proclaim to others. God, thank you for the work that you've done in us that you want to see done in the lives of others, that you would have people come to know you, that you would have people come to be part of your family. And thank you for Jesus who has made a way for us to be counted as your own, to be forgiven of our sins. And Holy Father, even now as we continue to worship, as we continue to reflect upon you, I pray that Jesus would be lifted high in this place and that we would be drawn to you because of Christ and because of Christ alone. We ask all this in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus.